Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Words like physics or gold or tattoos or dark metal, all these words actually help you. Increasingly, probably, that you get a reply. It's all very interesting. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of At The Margin. Today, we're chatting to Dr. Jose Ortega of Queen's University, Belfast. Jose is an expert in matching markets. Matching markets are essentially markets without money. Um, normally, we use prices to allocate goods to those who value them the most. If I'm at an auction and I'm bidding on, say, a car, if I pay more than somebody else who's bidding, that means I value it more. That means the car goes to the person who uh, will get the greatest value out of having the car. We're able to allocate goods and resources to those who value them the most. How do we allocate goods and resources to those who value them the most when we don't have prices? Well, that's where matching markets come into play. Um, and they're really interesting. Well, I find them really interesting when it comes to a situation where uh, we have preferences at both sides of the transaction. So if you think about, say, um, somebody who's going for a job, well, the person, the candidate for the job, they have a preference when it comes to the type of employer or where they want to work. And, you know, the employer has preferences when it comes to who they want to work for them. Another example would be romantic partners um, where... Both individuals have preferences as to who they want to uh, pair up with. And this last point is something that Holesway has done a lot of work on, in particular when it comes to online dating. He's looked at how, well, what factors result in matching success, or he's at least familiar with that literature, and has done a, some research himself on how online dating has changed the pattern of matching, particularly with respect to the diversity of romantic couples. So this is a very interesting topic and hopefully listening to two economists doesn't take the romance out of dating for you. So Holesway kicks us off here by telling us exactly what a matching market is. Yeah, thanks for inviting me now. So matching markets refer to environments that look like markets but where we cannot just simply use money. For example, if I want to do, say I want to 
to a, my PhD at MIT or Harvard, you know, I cannot just find my place there. If I need, if I, uh, my kidneys are not working and I need to receive a kidney to uh, have better life expectancy, I cannot just go to nearest hospital and say, hey, I want to buy a kidney or, or buy it from somebody on the street. Uh, if I, I want to have a good uh, place for my kid in a good public school, I cannot just buy a place for him or her, I have, they have to apply. And, you know, it's this idea of markets, things that would like, look like markets, but there's no money involved on them. Okay, so, so there's no money involved, and therefore it's a bit like, almost like a barter that we have to try and match up people's preferences and, well, not necessarily barter, but that's maybe one specific type. Yeah, in a sense, like barter, but I mean, in some other cases, we have fancier algorithms. For example, if you think of school choice, uh, some algorithms that were used in the U.S. is, for example, you try to assign as many students to their first choice, the, the school that they say, no, this is my favorite, or there are other algorithms. And, and yeah, as you mentioned, there are considerations about fairness, there are considerations about efficiency, and very much like a normal market, really. But. Right, okay, so no money. It's a lot more complicated, basically. Um, and uh, so there are different types of, of matching markets then. Maybe you can tell us about how this can sort of play out. There are basically two, two big types of matching markets. The ones where we try to match uh, people to other people. So, for example, uh, think of it as a marriage market. There's men and women being matched to each other. And we like to understand who, who gets matched to whom and why, like, uh, what what do we search in a in a romantic partner, in a spouse, in a girlfriend, in a boyfriend? You know, uh, so these are very interesting uh, types of markets. And then we have uh, these kind of other one-sided markets where we try to match people to objects. Say, for example, we try to match students to schools. We try to match. Um, uh, for example, uh, young doctors to hospitals to do their residences, uh, and this. These are the two kind of big, big problems out there in the literature. Okay, right. So school choice is probably something a lot of people are familiar with. And that would be where people are in a district and they have children in the household and they want to, the children has, the child has to go to school and people have a preference from school A over school B. And then another household has a preference over school A and school B. And we have to try and allocate the children to the schools in a way that maximizes welfare. Is that the, the idea? Yes, exactly. Something like that. So, for example, in, in some places, like most of the UK, I understand, kids are allocated to school just based on geographical distance. You just go to the nearest school uh, based on catchment areas or something like that. However, that brings some problems because, for example, student, very bright students in poor areas have to go to poor schools, right? And perhaps not so bright students in rich areas go to the nicest uh, public schools. So perhaps we... Uh, there's this new idea of trying to let students express their preference over school so that perhaps, you know, we can let the brighter students go to the best schools. So perhaps, you know, there's simply potential for reallocation of students so that everybody's better off. So, so now in many countries, like, for example, the U.S., in Hungary, in Chile, and so on, so, in, in France, there is students are located to schools based on their preferences, so they can submit, say, a ranking of schools. Uh, it differs, but depending on each country, you can list 10, 4, or something like that. 
But you can say my top priority school is this. The second best is this. Yeah. And then students are allocated based on their preferences that are reported. Okay. So, okay. So you you have you you submit a preference, and then somebody has to allocate students based on that preference. And the procedure of doing that allocation obviously is quite complicated. <laughs> yeah, there are there are different procedures. There's something called the post mechanism, but the the thing that was used in the beginning was realized that it's first it gives wrong incentives to people. Say perhaps you want to play safe and not if you think you don't want to list the top school as your top school because you think you don't have really uh, the best chance to get there. So maybe you. You don't want a mechanism to give growing incentives to yeah. strategize. And then you also want to that the outcome of the mechanism or the algorithm is going to be efficient, it's going to be um, probably going to try to assign as many people to their top choice, it's going to be also stable in the sense that there's no justified MB that a student that is less pref- has less not so good grades as me gets assigned to a school that I wanted and I don't get to that school. And, Okay, so that's you make you make a very interesting point there, and in that people will try to game the system if they can at all. So you want to make sure that they reveal their true preferences. They don't sort of say, "Well, if I put this school ahead of this one, that might mean that that might lower my chance for maybe option C or some some other sort of permutation." They might think in their head, so that you want to try and stop that sort of behavior, I suppose. Yeah, you want to stop it for several reasons. First, it, it can result in a completely different allocation that they want. That you would obtain if people would just reveal their their real preferences. Second, because if the mechanism can be played by the smarter pilots or the most strategic parents, then you you are not leveling the play playing field because you know the people that really think about this they can they know exactly how to manipulate the system to get to the better schools. Okay, so you have to be careful about how you decide to make sure people are incentivized to reveal the truth and. Um, so have you any examples of maybe a mechanism that on, on paper, on, like on face value, you think, okay, this is efficient, but actually there's a, there's a perverse incentive there. And maybe is there a mechanism that, that actually works? Yeah, yeah, sure. So for example, uh, the, the so-called Boston mechanism is called Boston mechanism. So in that mechanism, you just try to assign as many people to their first choice and as many people to the second choice and so on and so on. Yeah. So this mechanism has very perverse incentives because... It's not in your best interest to to say MIT or or Queens is my best choice because perhaps that will harm the chance to get to my second best. Perhaps there's not enough applications to my second best. And if I just say the second best is the first, I will get assigned there for sure. Uh, Whereas if I say my first is my first, there's a chance I don't get there and I will end up further down on my preference list. Yeah. So... So there's other mechanism that there's available and it's actually used in many countries in the world called the Fair Acceptance proposed by Nobel Prize laureates uh, Lloyd Shapley and David Gale that does something a a bit different uh, in the sense that there's a sequence of proposals and rejections, but you can guarantee that this mechanism produces an allocation that is is in a sense fair and also does not lead, uh, give incentives to misrepresent preferences. And, and how does that applicate that procedure work? So say um, students propose to the most desired uh, school, the schools tentatively accepts the proposals and rejects uh, 
anything that they cannot accommodate. Those rejected students now propose to the second best school, and that school may reject some of their applicants that they were already accepted until it fills the quota. And those students that were rejected keep proposing and keep proposing. And okay. we have this kind of cycle. There isn't that same interaction between your first preference and your second preference, like there would be the other mechanism. Is that sort of what's happening here? It's breaking the link. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 never a better idea to to apply to the second best first because the application to the first does not have any effect yeah. on the second one. Yeah, and so okay, so that's sort of school matching. But so one interesting one is kidney matching. How does that work essentially? It works as follows. So suppose you need a kidney and your brother wants to give one to you, and I also need a kidney and my girlfriend wants to give one to me. But perhaps my girlfriend were not blood compatible or antibody compatible, and therefore she cannot give give a kidney to me, and I have to be on the waiting list until forever. Same problem with you. You need a kidney. Your brother wants to give one to you, but you are not compatible. So what is kidney exchange? Well, your brother is going to give, perhaps your brother is compatible with me, and my girlfriend is compatible with you. And perhaps my girlfriend can give the kidney to you and your brother can give the kidney to me. In practice, sometimes kidney exchange can happen in a much bigger scale. There can be, instead of just two pairs, three pairs, four pairs, and so on. So a normal market would use prices to try and allocate these things, whereas we don't have that in kidneys. It's it's, it's illegal in many cases to, <laughs> yeah. to, to buy kidneys. Actually, in, in Iran, it's not. It's it's the only country where I know it. You can just go ahead and, and buy market uh, buy a kidney. And okay, so another thing that I want to talk about is and some you've done a bit of work on this is in terms of online dating. So matching markets and online dating. Uh, maybe you can help us bridge the link here. What exactly? What can matching markets help us? How can they help us to understand online dating? Uh, I, I like economists like to think of marriage sometimes as a market because there are clear traits that we can estimate how much women prefer this in a man or how much men prefer this in a woman. For example, we know very much how having an extra degree of education helps you both in terms of marriage and in terms of uh, online dating. And uh, so there are, there are Few papers studying online dating, I think it's very interesting because online dating now is the most common way to meet your spouse in the US. 40% of almost uh, heterosexual uh, relationships now start online, and mm. up to 70% of homosexual marriages. So it has clearly changed uh, the way in which you know, society is built. Uh, I think it's probably the most important decision you make in your life who, who you end up marrying. And now you now to meet somebody online. And for me, this is exactly a matching market because people are assigned all the time. And perhaps you are not assigned to whoever you want to be assigned because that person has to choose you as well. So to, to me, it resembles very much matching market. Uh, and, and the good thing is that we also have a lot of data. We see the outcome, right? And therefore we can estimate preferences and we can estimate uh, uh, using data from online dating, we can see who tries to reach to whom, uh, how how efficient is the outcome of the market, perhaps. Uh, it, it's a bit interesting because the first time I, I heard this idea that you could think of marriage as market, I was like, no, 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 wait, this is crazy. This is insane. This is it takes really all the romance out of it. It does. It does. It, kill, <laughs> it kills your all your dreams of being romantic. <laughs> But once you see the papers and see how well uh, 
how, how aligned the preferences are of men and women. It's crazy. It's it opens your eyes, perhaps not for the better, but it does. Yeah. So, so there's one paper that that, that you've uh, referenced before, this uh, Brook paper, looking at so you're matching and sort of a competition hypothesis, and they match this hypothesis to maybe the um, to the data to try and see does like how does the data represent the different hypotheses, and and one thing um, that comes out is the sense of. Uh, there's a bit of a hierarchy. People know where, and people know where they are in the hierarchy in the sense of desirability, and you can see that information from the from the online dating data. Yeah, from online dating and from marriage. But the online dating paper is, is very interesting, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you why. So, if you ask in a room to, to your 300 students, you ask, "Okay, everybody, uh, who here thinks is smarter than the average person in this room?" Around 80% of people will raise their hands. Like, we tend to believe that we're smart and average. But surprisingly, when when you look at uh, whether... So you have very biased beliefs about how smart you are. But surprisingly, yeah. you have very accurate beliefs about how desirable you are in dating. Uh, so what the guys in OkCupid do, they construct a desirability index based on, you know, how many messages you're getting and so on. So on. And they, they rank, you know, from, say, minus one to... And, and then they look, who are you contacting? So uh, you're contacting somebody that is actually on your league, and you are, you are. You tend to contact somebody that is just above your league, but you are just above. So you are, you know exactly more or less where you, where you are. Yeah, and, and I, we know very interesting things like how much more do you, how longer are your messages when you try to reach out of your league or whether your messages contain more positive words and so on. Okay. Um, another example there that you reminded me of is, is driving. Everybody thinks they're above average driver. And uh, if everybody's above average, then what is the average? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, many, many, many questions that you ask people, people tend to have completely inaccurate beliefs about themselves. Well, I wonder, so the thing about the, the online dating is that there's a feedback. You're getting feedback the whole time. So you soon learn um where you stand basically if you're, if you're not getting if you're not getting a, a response well then you know you, you know um where you are in uh compared to others i suppose um yeah and but, the feel, feedback is actually quite brutal right because we know that uh the gene coefficient in tinder is it's much higher than the one average economy 20 percent of users uh, concentrate 80 percent of the likes uh, that people give on tinder let, no, let's just delve into that a bit more so basically so 20% of the users get 80% of the likes. So there's a few people who are getting a lot of attention. Everybody likes, yeah. And that, that only means that the remaining 80% of us are only getting 20% of likes. So, yeah. Um, we have a situation where people are trying to match with each other and it's a, it's a two-sided match. So one partner has, has preferences and the other partner has preferences and we need to, to line these up. Um, and in a case there's a hypothesis that there's maybe a hierarchy that some people are more desirable than others and we sort of know our place in this hierarchy and we sort of aim for others who are of an equal level of desirability quantified by, you know, likes on, on dating sites. Um, but then we sort of reach, we, we try and reach up. Everybody tries to go for maybe those who are as desirable as us or a little bit more desirable than us. And um, and wh- where we're reaching, you know, you mentioned this, you touched on this, determines our strategy. Our strategy differs depending on who we're, we're reaching in this hierarchy. 
differs very much, and uh, different types of people have very different strategies. So, for example, we know that particular races tend to reply much more than other races. We know uh, that people in the lower end tend to, of course, reply and write longer messages. We know that when you are going to write somebody above your link, you type longer messages, you type messages that contain more positive words. Yeah, it's very interesting to see the strategies, but we know that actually there is a very interesting paper that shows that the outcome of the marriage market looks or, or dating site uh, is the one predicted very close to the one predicted by stability. Uh, yeah, it's, an, it's in the AER, it's in American Economic Review 2010. So it's right. interesting. So, so say that again. So basically, um, the stable market in terms of if we're talking about ma- how markets match and the stable outcome is if the th- what the theory predicts aligns to what the what the data says in online dating. Yeah, more or less, more or less, you can you can do that conclusion. Yeah. And so you know the strategies, you know the outcome. There's quite a lot of data available for researchers there to look at. It, it does help to understand the. Who gets uh, who? Who marries whom and why? Uh, it, it 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 certainly gives you insights, and and I think something I really like about uh, reading papers in this direction is that you learn something for your personal life as well. Like uh, for example, when I was reading um, the data on on OkCupid, they tell you which words you need to write on your uh, first message that you sent to somebody to increase the chance that you get a reply. And, and it's very interesting because the words that you think that you shouldn't send are exactly the ones you know. It's they confirm your belief, but the ones that words like physics or God or tattoos or dark metal, all these words actually help you in, in getting and in, uh, increasing the probability that you get a reply. It, it's all very interesting. So, so so words like tattoo and God. Well, they sort of refer to certain type personality types. So basically, if if somebody reads this message and it puts a light bulb in their head, they think, okay, this is this is the person for me. But it's it's very much um, it's it's that you're finding your niche. It's, it's not going to apply to everybody, basically. So is that, is that how it works? It's exactly that. It's it's easier reaching out for something somebody that has perhaps the same incentive taste like you. For example, I think that's why online dating is so popular for homosexual uh, people because perhaps you think there are not as many homosexual partners available, but searching online it makes it much easier, right? So perhaps going to a bar, guessing who else may may be also homosexual is not that easy. But online, yeah. it's easier. Same, for example, for older people or diverse people. It's much easier to find somebody who is also searching. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it comes back to the whole idea of a thick market versus a thin market, that you have you have more potential matches uh, in certain yeah, certain subsections of the market, I suppose. Um, exactly. So you, you have thicker pools of people searching and that general tends to be good because... It is easier, and uh, also kind of perhaps it's a bit a jump from here, but it's also easier to escape from uh, bad relationships. I think, uh, for example, it's well known that when divorce uh, laws are passed and it's easier to divorce or or to appeal and these things, uh, we see less cases of domestic violence and so on because uh, women in abusive relationships or men have it's easier for them just to 
find a new relationship or escape. And I think uh, there's no data on this. This is my conjecture. Uh, I think online dating will also have a, a positive effect on that. Yeah, that's actually a really good point in that because um, uh, we don't usually see these relationships, but it, it, like it makes sense. It makes sense to me in that um, when it's easier to go to the to um, yeah, when when this sort of search or uh, what's the word buyer's entry <laughs> or search cost is reduced, well then you're more likely to maybe move out of some move out of a suboptimal allocation. <laughs> Translate this to a <laughs> to an economic <laughs> jargon. <laughs> it's, it's exactly that, and and I think it's like all the romance out of it. Good. In a sense, it takes all the romance out of it, but it's it's very interesting. There's this nice paper in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences a couple of years back. And it shows something that is very unintuitive is that relationships that start online last just as long or perhaps a bit longer than relationships that start elsewhere. So you think, you know, tend to think of Tinder and online dating apps as perhaps hookups or things for casual encounters. But actually, these relationships that start here, just as good as any, any other. And also, relationships that start online they transition towards marriage at a much faster rate than relationships that start elsewhere. That's really interesting. And is that because they're, they're perhaps a better match in that you, you've more closely aligned with, with your preferences? It comes better match. And there's also a self-selection issue, right? For people that are on online dating are, are quite actively looking, right? So yeah. perhaps these, these people are just are more into actually finding a partner. Okay, sure. And we're just, we have to stress here, we're talking an average. We're not talking for everybody. There are... We're not talking for everybody. No, no, no. And uh, there are always the average deviations, uh, indeed. But the average effect is, is exactly what I said. These relationships last as long. They reveal higher indices of satisfaction in census questions. You know, they, people go and ask, how happy are you with your marriage? Uh, and and transition towards marriage much faster. Right. So it, it's interesting that something as silly as online dating that we do so casually has this big impact in society. Another interesting point that you brought up there about um, strategies in when you're on the online dating and and like like terms of endearment, basically straight off the bat, don't go down as well as uh... <laughs> the standard things like babe, love, Connie, all those things like. They don't help you, you know, and uh, yeah, it's also it's also very interesting to see. Um, and this can move a little bit into interracial dating. And uh, for example, if you ask, on oh, okay, they ask, you know, okay, give it. Would you strictly prefer to date somebody of your own gen uh, race? Fifty-one uh, percent of white women say yes. I have strong preference, and that's just what people are telling, right? Probably the real preference is much higher than that. Um, for example, there are other papers that have found that uh, white women would prefer to date a white male without education than a black man with a, a degree. And so it, it's interesting to see all these things, but it's interesting to see that perhaps these outcomes were based just to how we meet our partners in the past. Most common ways were be a friend of a friend, be a, a neighbor, be a, a, in the school, but we we were studies are very segregated by religion, by race, by income. You know, you tend to your the friends of a friends probably same religion as yours, same race, same income level, same education level. My neighbors probably have the same income level as me. I mean, we all have 
could they able were able to afford a house in this neighborhood, uh, and so on and so forth. But suddenly, with online dating, with Tinder, you are exposed to anybody ten miles around, and these people are presented to you somewhat randomly. So suddenly, you are you can reach to people that otherwise would be a complete stranger to you. This is how I started this paper. I was heavily using Tinder when I was uh, in New York, doing uh, part of my PhD in Columbia University. And I was very surprised to see the people I was meeting were so different to me. Yeah. And then I actually plotted my Facebook friendship and posted, plotted the girlfriends I had in high school and undergrad. And I had lots of friends with these people, but the girls I met on Tinder, you know, I had nothing in common with them in terms of friends and perhaps also in terms of bands, music that we listen to, things that we do, even food that we eat. Um, and so that has consequences that are very important. Yeah, so basically it's um, increasing the diversification, essentially, of of the pool. And then so that means that we have more diversified um, matches, I suppose. It is, because, for example, if you think that the racial preference that we know, we know that people prefer somebody from their own race, with few exceptions. Uh, but you think, okay, so if your preference were this strong, and suddenly you are exposed to other people, that wouldn't change anything because I still prefer, say, to marry a Latina rather than somebody else. But actually, there is a very, very nice paper in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences by, called The Limits of Radial Prejudice that shows that when people are exposed, uh, say, I don't reply to Asian Americans, uh, but once I'm exposed to one Asian American and have a successful interaction, some chat doesn't need to be a date or anything. Suddenly, I become much more open. And this kind of evidence is all over the place. There's a nice paper, I think, QGE or AER, that shows that communities where they were they had American soldiers that were probably black became much more open to, to uh, racial interaction and so But it's very interesting that so this mechanism would not do anything of being exposed to other people, would not do anything if your preferences were very strict. But the cool thing is that your preferences are not strict. You change your mind about preferences once you're exposed to new people. Yeah, so, yeah, that's really interesting. So basically, you don't have to... So our preferences are heavily influenced by what we're familiar with, and this helps you become familiar with um, more things, and therefore, therefore, your, your preferences may be exactly that you you perhaps perhaps i say i'm mexican never left mexico and for me the best food is tacos but you know <laughs> i go abroad and i try to stay by and i love it no and it's it's in a sense based on that like you perhaps for example you care more about other things like education like income and then race is a bit less left behind uh and, and it's very interesting because we see very, very, very strong correlations that after uh, internet is enabled and, and OkCupid and Tinder come to play, the number of interracial marriages changes dramatically. And this is a very sensitive issue because 50 years ago, interracial marriage was still forbidden in 13 out of the 50 states in the US. So it's very sensitive, you know, like you could go to prison for this, marrying somebody. You've done a paper on this, basically, looking exactly like that. Um, and you, I know you sort of half explained it there, but uh, what exactly did you do in your in your analysis? Half the paper is theory and half the paper is empirics. And so the theory, I'll start with theory because I really like the model. So basically we did a matching model, just the standard thing. Uh, but here we had 
it's we had many different matching models, and each of them was you could think of it as phrases, and we put them in a graph, and it looks really pretty nice dynamic. And suddenly we started, uh, and and the idea is that you were uh, able to to match with somebody from a different gender, but only inside your bubble. You only you mainly had. Uh, interracial connections. You basically didn't have any in between races. And suddenly we start increasing that parameter, the probability that you meet somebody outside your race. And we saw that the number of interracial marriages increased really, 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 really fast. First, because you were so, some people were exposed to others, but also because those new links allow that a friend of mine now can meet a friend of a girl I met and since marrying somebody via friends of friends is the second most common way, you know, the effect is reinforced. So this was a very nice model in which we, we theoretically and with the help of simulations, we show that the number of interracial marriages should increase very fast if you increase the probability that you meet people randomly. And that, that was more or less the takeaway. Uh, it, it is, we show in, uh, theoretically that for a measure of how good the marriage is, that also increased very fast. Uh, and that was the model. No? And it, it's a cool model because it's, it has a very nice picture to do it and you can put it in that light. It, it's very cute. And then the empirics, we try to say, okay, is the model correct? Let's give it a valid uh, prediction. So first thing we did, and I think this is why the paper got so much media attention and, and sites because no, I think economists haven't thought about online dating seriously. Um, uh, so what we did is we look at the impact of online dating in interracial marriage. And the first, we just plotted these two things together. And you see a clear different trend after uh, internet starts being a thing. And then you see a clear other trend uh, after uh, Tinder and OkCupid start being a thing. So, so, sorry, you're plotting, is it interracial marriages recorded yeah. in certain areas? You just plot uh, interracial marriage in the U.S. that you can construct from the census uh, over time. And, you know, in, in 1967, it's basically zero because it's still forbidden in 13 states. And then it starts growing very, very slow. And then suddenly it's a complete change in the slope. And that correlation, uh, it's, it was very, very interesting. Because why, why is this happening? So then we'll try to uh, try to see whether this correlation was actually causation or, or try to provide more arguments on this. So what we did is to look. Uh, we don't have data on how many people are downloading Tinder, right? Actually, you cannot have because you well, in the, back in the day we didn't have any number of measure of how many people are using online dating. We know how many people are marrying interracially because the census in the U.S. tells you that very, very clearly. So what we did is we used as a proxy for online dating the number of people with internet access. We think that, of course, clearly you cannot use online dating if you don't have internet access. Uh, and th therefore, these two things should be very, very highly correlated. And then we look... Uh, we downloaded a wide set of controls and education, income, other things that you also affect your, your decision of marrying. And we look at whether having internet 
affected probably that you married interracially two or three years later. And we found very strong coefficients, like significant, very strong effects, uh, uh, suggesting that there was still a large effect. What we're doing now is, uh, I'll, I'll say two more things on this. Uh, we're now, the papers, we haven't published yet. Um, we're trying to tackle the concern, you can say, well, Internet uh, availability perhaps is not just exogenous completely. No, you know, some places like New York are more likely to have more internet than Texas, and perhaps the racial preference changed a lot. So we are using several instrument variables on this to tackle this concern. Uh, and since we we put that paper online, uh, a couple of sociologists from Stanford and Texas just went went asking, like, okay, how did you meet, are you married, and how did you meet your partner, and it's your marriage intervention, have found that if you met your partner online with the most recent data, probability that your marriage is interracial is, you're 7% more likely to be in an interracial marriage, controlling for a wide range of other characteristics. Like, if, as you said before, you know, your life partner is the most important, one of the most important decisions you'll make in life. And if, if um, exposure to different races uh, makes you more open to uh, have, choosing a life partner of a different race, well, then that's a really strong uh, signal to maybe try and, you know, have, have more mixing in other ways to try and maybe uh, remove, remove, you know, racism in other aspects of society. You're absolutely right, but it's, it's interesting that, for example, the government has so many programs to try to foster uh, racial integration and other types of integration, you know, religion, integration between religious groups and so on. And in general, it's incredibly hard to achieve, particularly in the most intimate spheres of, of, of life, like marriage. And it, it has been an obstacle. It just didn't happen, you know, from 1960 to 2000, basically, or 1995. And it's it's curious that something as silly as, as these things can have such an effect. It, and there, are, and it's not really just online dating. It's one thing. So, for example, another thing that we know that has a massive effect of on your life outcomes is doing an Erasmus. Suddenly, you are exposed to a completely new world. And we know that if you do an Erasmus, controlling for other things, there's a very nice paper by Matthias Parry that they look at. There is a randomization between who does Erasmus to avoid the self-selection issue. These people are much more likely to marry internationally, much more likely to end up working abroad. And it's just this, this thing of uh, new connections. In the study of social networks, it's uh, one of the most popular papers ever by a sociologist called Mark Grunewetter that explained that in many cases, the most important connections in your life are not your close friends or your uh, siblings, but people you don't really know their surnames. He called them weak ties. This is how it's more likely for you to hear about new job offers, to hear about news, to hear about events that you are going to be super interested in. And this is what was happening uh, for romantic interactions. It was a friend of a friend that was connecting you to, to your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whatever. But now suddenly we are have these, we call them in the paper, absentees. Suddenly you are just connected to somebody random because pretty much that's what Erasmus does. That's what, uh, not, not absolutely random, but Tinder does. Uh, and this has a massive effect on, on 
on the structure of society. Um, that's all I have on my list. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to um, you wanted to, to mention. I wanted to mention that every time I present this academically, some old professor comes and says, yeah, that's how I met my wife or my second wife. Or, uh, and uh, so many of the late, late, late weddings I've been to uh, started online. It's, it's amazing. Second thing I want to mention is that uh, my girlfriend, I I met her at a party, but then I met her on, on, online. And that's, uh, it's interesting that it, you know, I study this the big side of it. Yeah, yeah. Applies no, to my friends, yeah, it applies is, to me. Yeah, it gives us... It's quite... It, it's something that we can all relate to, I think, uh, in the real world. Um, okay, well, Jose, uh, thanks a million. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for the interesting questions. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.